Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. For this recording, I am joined by Professor Chris Grayton, an Associate Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Professor Grayton earned his PhD from Georgetown University in 2015. He's an environmental historian with publications in the International Journal of Middle East Studies and the Journal of, of the Ottoman and Turkish Studies Association, among other journals and volumes. He is a producer and original co-creator of the Ottoman History Podcast. Founded in 2011, the Ottoman History Podcast has grown to be one of the largest digital resources for academic discussion concerning the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East. Professor Grayton has indeed conducted over 200 interviews for the Ottoman History Podcast, with the Indian Ocean World Podcast can only aspire to create a catalogue of such depth and importance. In this recording, though, we'll be discussing Professor Grayton's new monograph, The Unsettled Plain, an environmental history of the late Ottoman frontier, which was published with Stanford University Press last year. A wonderful contribution to environmental history and to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the early period of the Turkish Republic, the Unsettled Plain won the Nikki Kedi Book Award from the Middle East Studies Association. Professor Grayton, thank you very much for agreeing to record this podcast with us. Well, thank you for having me, Philip. It's a pleasure to be on uh, your program, reach some new audiences in the Indian Ocean world. Thanks very much. All right. So I just want to ask you basically about the origins of your project to begin with, um, and also then how it developed from a doctoral project to what it became, um, a book published uh, last year. Uh, why Chukarova, the region which was your major area of study? Uh, why the 19th and 20th centuries? Uh, and what did you set out to study when you began the project? And how did that shift as you conducted your research? Sure. Uh, there's a lot of ways to answer this question in terms of contingencies, but I think it's easier to explain why it was really my destiny to write this book and really work on this region. I was an undergraduate um, student during the beginning of the U.S. War on Terror, and I got interested in the Middle East out of pretty like instinctual and politically motivated uh, concerns. And I kind of wanted to study this subject because I wanted to know about the Middle East that I wasn't hearing about in the news and that wasn't be even being written about. One thing led to another and I become an academic. Um, but that kind of is the through line in how this project and how I was thinking about it evolved. And obviously, it's a long way from the U.S. war on terror to rural history of the Ottoman Empire. But the point is that ultimately... I wanted to write that new history of the modern Middle East that I thought would excite people and would change the way they think about it. And Chukarova was just the perfect space to do this. And it was the story that I found there, but it, it's also the, the, the space itself uh, that allows for that. Environmentally, it's very different from what people imagine as the Middle East. It's um, not arid. Uh, ha has mountains, lowlands. Uh, it's very diverse environmentally. Um, and it was very diverse in terms of its human geography as well. And this was not the diversity like cosmopolitan Mediterranean cities that people sought out. Like, oh, did you know that Muslims and Christians used to live in the same mercantile community as all cities have always had migrants from all over? Like, no, this was rural diversity. It was diversity in terms of how people lived, you had nomadic pastoralists, you had all sorts of different agriculturalists, and you had diversity within that. You had pastoralists who were nomadic and who weren't nomadic. Uh, and then also the classic 
ethno-linguistic diversity. Um, you had people whose ethnicities could be described as Turkish, Arab, Kurdish, Armenian, Greek, and so forth. These are also different religious groups. And those are really all the different groups that made up the Ottoman Empire, the major ethno-linguistic groups, or at least a portion of it. I don't want to skip anybody, obviously, but it had a lot, right? This region had a lot. And then the last thing is what I said, that story, this incredible story that you could already know from the pre-existing scholarship of a transformation of a place where the state presence was very limited, where people had highly mobile, let's say indigenous ecologies uh, that transformed very rapidly uh, during the 19th century with the assertion of more central control from the modern state and the emergence of global capitalism. And of course, as the project evolved, I found myself reading very far back in time. I said, you know, at one point I was finishing the book and I was reading this study of like the Hittites in Italian from the 1990s. And I was like, okay, Chris, you got to pump the brakes here. We need to focus on the main story. Like there are other questions that come up. Maybe the 19th and 20th century shouldn't play such a large role in our narrative of modernity. But that's how I ended up there. And the last thing I would say is that when I was imagining a dissertation, and like, I say it's destiny because I jumped around so many different topics, you know, I couldn't decide what I wanted to devote 10 years of my life to. I found a good book in this history. And for me, a good book has a little bit of everything. It's different than writing a journal article. A good book should have the entirety of the human experience as best as you can encapsulate it. It shouldn't just be about one narrow subject. You should have people who have full and complex lives. There should be tragedy, there should be romance, there should be happiness, there should be all the things that you would look for in a complete human story, a novel, for example. And I found that in this history. And so it was a vehicle um, to do some interesting things that I was super passionate about. That's really interesting. And I love the way that you were thinking about the whole kind of human experience in there. One of the things that really speaks to this at the forefront in your book, actually, is your use of um, sources. Um, particularly the incorporation of folk tales. Um, I suppose you've already kind of addressed how you're drawn to those folk tales. I think they speak to that what you just um, what you just mentioned. But could you kind of speak to how you came across these sources and kind of are there lessons here that um, other environmental historians could learn about the value of these kinds of sources to our discipline? So the dissertation project was called "The Mountains Are Ours," and this is a refrain from a folk song that emerged in the context of a local uprising against Ottoman forced sedentarization policy during the 1860s. A song that continues to be known in Turkey to this day and actually has become like a pop song in some cases. There was like a rock rendition uh, during the, you know, the Cold War era. Um, very powerful song, very defiant, very clear, uh, making a claim to sovereignty, right? Like the mountains are ours. We know the land. And we deserve to determine what happens on this land. I found that to be a great refrain uh, for the dissertation. Editors made me change the title of the book. So I had to find a different song to start the, the book with. And I did start with a different song. And this song, not inherently political at all. It's a, it's a mother's lament for her son. And it's a classic story. You know, a, a strong-headed guy from a small town leaving home after some family drama, somehow involving, you know, a girl he likes. 
And it ends in tragedy. It ends with him dying of malaria in the big city. You know, so this mother, this family lamenting the loss of a son who was guided by his passions and who was destroyed by forces beyond any of their control. That's the other thing that this book was about, right? The first song, The Mountains Are Ours, it's about how people laid claim to land, how people thought about their environment as belonging to them and how that changed and how that interacted with the state and how that interacted with modern capitalism. But the other thing it's about is about ordinary people and you know how the story of the making of the modern world affected them and how they were part of it. So these kind of songs allow you to, to, to bring in that local texture. And they have stuff that the archival sources don't have. But to the point about telling a good story, they're also literature. They're good. They have a clear point. And people have saved them because they are good stories, not because they were a piece of paper stuffed away in a box somewhere. And so I think that's also important in terms of thinking about the types of sources we use. Not all our sources are created in the same context. To be clear for this book, I did a lot of archival research, probably spent way more time in archives than anything else, but that diversity of the sources was very important to me because it allows for a more complete picture. Yeah, I agree. I think most uh, historians do spend a lot of time in archives, but the, the bit that you did extra here is the thing that really... It was a really fantastic aspect of your book. Um, you mentioned uh, in the uh, in that opening um, tale about the, the the tragedy, the death by malaria, and malaria is absolutely front and center uh, in the unsettled plain. One of the themes of our that has come up regularly in our podcast series is a multi-species histories and animal histories. And that's the kind of one I ask you is kind of from the, from the perspective um, of the mosquito. What does, um, can mosquitoes speak uh, in this history? And if so, uh, what are they saying? Can the mosquito speak as famously first asked by Timothy Mitchell uh, in his influential uh, book chapter? Um, so this book is about the making of a settlement space. Let's call it, I call it a frontier. You'll probably ask about that. But it's a space where people are changing their modes of habitation, settling in villages and settling in places that many of which were already good for mosquitoes before they got there. And the book's also about the commercialization of agriculture and how the rise of uh, capitalism in the Eastern Mediterranean reshaped local ecologies. And in both cases, from the mosquitoes' perspective, this was like a feast. This was like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's the only way to think about it. Mosquitoes, they blood feed um, specifically to lay eggs. So historians typically point out that only the, the quote-unquote female mosquito blood feeds. Otherwise, they eat nectar or whatever other thing like this. Um, so they really need to feed on humans and animals' blood to reproduce. And because of the changes in people's modes of habitation and because of the economic changes uh, of the 19th and 20th century, up until World War II at least, it was just a smorgasbord for, for mosquitoes, let's say. 
And, you know, this is an important story because, and, and this is kind of what Mitchell was getting at from the other end of the that that um timeline. We associate modernity with the eradication of primordial scourges like malaria, like these diseases that people no longer have a lot of experience with if they live in particular environments today. If you live in the tropics today, mosquito-borne illnesses are still a very big deal. Uh, but because we associate modernity with the elimination of malaria in places like the United States, we lose sight of the fact that the transformations we associate with modernity, and I'm not wedded to the concept of modernity, that these transformations actually gave people less autonomy over their health and in many cases caused new epidemics. I'll just give one quick example from the book. In the Chukorova region, the majority of people were nomadic pastoralists who used to move between the mountains and the lowlands on a seasonal basis in a manner that would be perfect for protecting themselves from malaria because mosquitoes could only reproduce at a certain temperature. So in the winter, you're fine in the lowlands. In the summer, you go to the mountains where there's less chance of contact with mosquitoes. They didn't know that, but they knew that this was helpful. With the introduction of cotton agriculture in the same space, you have the exact opposite temporality. You have seasonal workers coming to the Chukorova region at the beginning of spring, precisely at the beginning of mosquito reproduction season, and planting, harvesting the cotton at the end of the summer, exactly the peak period for malaria transmission because mosquitoes have had months to reproduce. It's creating an ecology that is ideally suited for the transmission of malaria. And so in bringing that out, I was trying to, you know, emphasize that fundamentally it's human activity that shapes these disease ecologies. These diseases are not rooted in the environment. Yes, malaria has been present in the Mediterranean basin for a long time. It's in James Webb's telling humanity's burden. It's been with humanity as long as there's been humans almost. But the details are what's relevant and those are shaped by human action. So what the mosquito is telling us is go ahead if you want, but you know, this is not a good idea <laughs> until humans wage a war on the mosquito, which maybe is a conversation for another time. Let's follow up on that then um, with the uh, with with the human waging the war on the mosquito, mostly in the in the mid twentieth century. In your final chapter, you um, discuss the kind of the scientific efforts by the um, Republic of Turkey to combat malaria. One of the things I wanted to kind of ask you about, this is very, it coincides with similar efforts happening elsewhere as well. And I wondered, was this, was the Republic of Turkey's efforts part of a global discourse? Did other nations or colonies draw on evidence from the Republic of Turkey in their own efforts? And I suppose, and vice versa as well. So, you're absolutely right to assume that the Republic of Turkey's anti-malaria program is part of a low, a larger global public health ecosystem. Mm. To give people who aren't familiar with the history some background, uh, the Ottoman Empire uh, collapsed during the First World War, was defeated and broken to a number of nation states, one of them being the Republic of Turkey. In the region I study, Chukarova, 
is in the southernmost reaches of the new nation state of Turkey at the border, the modern day border with Syria. So just as I described before, this is a region in which malaria has, has really taken on a very prominent place, but malaria is present all throughout Turkey basically at this time. Nonetheless, Chukarova kind of becomes the laboratory for Turkey's malaria control program. They send doctors there to train, to really train on treating the worst malaria conditions possible to then go back to their native uh, villages and towns that they're from in Turkey. And um, the doctors who are um, designing Turkey's anti-malaria campaign, first of all, many of them are trained as doctors in the Ottoman Empire, which also had started already, even though it was an empire, had started on the sort of quasi-national public health. But they're also trained by predominantly European doctors and scientists who have used the, the colonial world as their laboratory for understanding uh, these diseases in large part. I did some research there. It doesn't play a huge role in the book because it's not who the book's about, but the, the Pasteur Institute, for example, has a lot of records on sort of these interesting um, scholarly exchanges taking place between doctors in places like Turkey and places like France, where, you know, these doctors have lifelong relationships with each other. And, you know, there's this one doctor in Adana who actually eventually became the minister of public health in Turkey, who like basically wants to try out everything that his his mentor develops or has, has written about. He wants to try it out too. These are famous people in public health, but maybe not for the listeners so famous, so I won't flesh them out really. But the point is there is this sort of uh, exchange and, and transfer taking place. And it's not totally one way because uh, under the League of Nations during the interwar period, these doctors need access to different environments where they can carry out studies. I talk a little, about, little bit about how this happened during World War I, for example. Uh, but at the same time, Turkey is a really interesting case for people who are interested in global public health during the 20th century because Turkey is not colonized, right? It's a sovereign republic that has this discourse of like the uplift of all of its citizens, right? It is not imperial in the sense of extracting or exploiting its population, at least in theory. And I would say that even though it's an autocratic state, it's it's true during this period that, that the citizens' well-being is central in the Republican project. Uh, but it's also, you know, an embattled Republic that just faced a war, maybe was nearly colonized in some view, and uh, is very jealous of its uh, medical sovereignty. So Turkey plays this interesting role trying to navigate marshalling global technology and public health knowledge while also protecting its sovereignty over its public health apparatus. So I just think it's fascinating for people who have read, I mean, in the history of Africa, public health is 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 a very prominent theme, but until the latter half of the 20th century, it's, it's colonialism, it's the history of colonialism uh, and colonialism and its discontents. Um, this would be true for South Asia pretty much up until post-World War II period. Um, but Turkey isn't France either, either. This isn't the pasteurization of France. This isn't those stories. This is something a little bit different. And, uh, you know, it's a story you'll find in Italy and Greece and other parts of the region. But nonetheless, I think it has something unique for those who want to learn more. That, that's really interesting. And I'm going to take that away from this podcast and think about think about that some more and think about how that might inform kind of my understanding of 
kind of my region where I usually focus on of East Africa as well. So thank you very much for that. I want to ask you some quite broad questions as well. Um, just kind of about about some of the key kind of trends in in our field, or more specifically your field as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that that I've noticed as well, I think I think is that I'm, it's fair to say that the environmental history of the Ottoman Empire is booming at the moment. Um, our former postdoctoral fellow at the IWC, where where this podcast is based, Ozan Pelivan is a part of that, but also Sam White, uh, Faisal Hussein, Alan Mikhail. And I'm sure there are more as well who are publishing important works uh, in the last decade or so. I just wondered, what, what's your take? Um, how do you explain the growth of this field? Um, and also, where do you see your work in relation to it? I think it's correct to say that the environmental history of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East was definitely booming 10 years ago. And that's why in the next five years, we're going to see even more fantastic books coming out, right? There's a long journey from start to finish. And I think it's still vibrant. And I actually think it's becoming more interesting uh, in recent years, especially. And I'll talk about what I think that is uh, in just a bit. You've already mentioned one great scholar. Um, but I think that the, the the question really needs to be answered in terms of like, why did it take so long for Ottoman historians and historians of the Middle East to adopt environmental history as a framework? Um, my first reaction when a friend told me about environmental history when I was a grad student is like, that sounds very Orientalist. This does not sound like how I want to write about the Middle East because I didn't really understand what it was. Um, but it, I think that's part of the answer that this field was concerned with other political questions, at least in the West, the major political questions of the Middle East during the late Cold War period were not environmental. In fact, people in the region um, authors such as Abdurrahman Munif, Yashar Kamal, who I talk about in my book, were starting to write agrarian novels and ecofiction that's very much in line with the kind of environmental history that I love. Um, they were doing it as a political project. But in the West, where the questions are dominated by like sort of more elite considerations, we didn't have that environmental history boom when, you know, changes in the land came out or whatever. I, this was not this was not earth shattering for historians of the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, you know, it's that that very elitist nature of the field until fairly recently, which is not interesting enough to talk about, that sort of, you know, the cultural turn, I think, got a little bit boring for people. And so people started looking to new questions as well. There was more of a desire to return to materiality. Uh, and the fact is that, you know, environmental questions today are the big questions of our time. And so this convergence of these things, when people started like, oh, I can do history like this, it just kind of took off. And it's been really inspiring, I think, at least I know well the historiography in Turkey, that a lot of students in Turkey, when they encounter this for the first time, they're like, oh, my family's from some place in Anatolia, some village, and we came to the city and now I'm educated. Environmental history lets me tell the story of this place that I'm from, right? The center of history doesn't have to be Istanbul, doesn't have to be Ankara. So that's why we've seen, you know, because also that environmental history is such a big tent, it can be almost anything. Like it makes it really easy to plug yourself into this new trend. However, I would say that not all of the environmental history that was published about the Ottoman Empire or the Middle East was exactly what I imagined myself to be doing. Um, and really, for me, what this type of work did was allow me to look at 
people we might call subaltern groups or who became subaltern groups uh, with the spread of colonialism and global capitalism. And it allows us to put their stories at the center. They're sort of on the front lines of modernity as like an extractive um, phenomenon in ecological terms. And so environment like helps us understand questions that are very fundamental to modern social history, questions about dispossession, questions about the emergence of inequality. And that's where I would mention people like Zozan Pahlivan, who are, I think are asking similar questions and using the environment to do that. Uh, she's working on the Kurdistan region of the Ottoman Empire or Onder Erenakgül, who's one of the most exciting scholars in Aegean studies working on environment and uh, labor and these questions in Western Anatolia um, so far afield. And I think um, this is this is the kind of environmental history that I was drawn to. I would also say that like I have a strong affinity for the kind of environmental history that Bathsheba Dumuth did in The Floating Coast or in Floating Coast. What an incredible book. What an incredible narrator. And I'd say my work has a little bit of that too, but because I was finishing my book when that book came out, I think I would have I think I would have written it a little bit differently if uh, I had had the chance to read a book like that. But I'm also I also love the kind of environmental history that has this texture where you're getting indigenous stories, stories about labor and class transformations, but you also have animals and non-human dimensions of nature uh, really foregrounded in the narrative. Wonderful. I will uh, make sure to look, check out that. That's Floating Coast. So I'll uh, go and look out for that. Uh, after oh, this. you'll finish it in one sitting. I don't think you'll, maybe, maybe that's an exaggeration, but uh, I was on vacation in Portugal and I spent half of it reading that book. It's a good book. Well, good. Uh, I'm looking for more very readable academic books. So I'll, uh, yes, I will follow follow that one up. Okay, I'm going to ask, uh, thank you very much for that very detailed response. That's uh, really interesting. I love the idea of bringing the so-called subaltern out through, through environmental history. One thing I also want to ask you from a very broad standpoint, and this is very selfish of me, because I also call, I also have the word frontier in the title of my monograph. And I, but I wanted to ask you as well, kind of what's your take on the, the term itself um, if from a global perspective? Um, and from a long-term perspective as well. Uh, how did the idea of the frontier help you to connect to other global regions and time periods as well, especially in the context of environmental history? The idea that this term might be more useful than it is problematic first dawned on me reading John Richard's The Unending Frontier and noticing that there's really only one part of the world that that book doesn't bother to incorporate where you have an early modern imperial state like what existed in imperial china or like what existed in europe and russia and so forth all he talks about the mughals even um it's the ottoman empire well it's not in the book and we don't know what's going on in that space on that early modern frontier when humans are extracting from the land and states are encouraging their their loyal proteges and sub subjects to not only settle but to you know sort of supporting them to explore the furthest reaches of what we can take from the environment um, so where, how did the Ottoman Empire fit into this? And as I started to investigate this story of not only forced sedentarization, but also the Ottoman government's 
programmed to deal with a, a huge refugee crisis involving millions of people by settling them into villages, into the countryside to try to create new agricultural settlements, I realized we were dealing with a settler state. And it was a very different kind of settler state than was familiar from my US history or from the history of uh, European colonialism more broadly. It was a pretty unique kind of settler state. And I wanted to emphasize that these histories are similar even if there's a lot of differences within them, that fundamentally a similar thing is happening. But it's a settler project that's playing out in a contracting empire. And it's not classical settler colonialism that we know from the U.S., but a rather different variation on that process. So yes, frontier in American historiography is a very loaded word. But I think it's loaded with some things that I want people to think about in terms of the Ottoman Empire on one hand, but also I wanted to emphasize that this is a place where change is happening, that the Ottoman Empire, that the Middle East is not like this like backwater of what's going on in the modern world. It's, it's very central. The refugee crisis that the Ottoman Empire confronts, uh, we're, I'm referring to hundreds of thousands, if not over a million, all in one fell swoop Muslims uh, from areas of Russian expansion coming into the Ottoman Empire and settling. This predates our modern like UN, United Nations um, refugee regime. The Ottoman Empire has to create one for itself decades before that. So it's very central to a lot of the developments we associate with, you know, let's call it globalization in this case. Uh, and so I thought the frontier uh, was very fitting for that. Um, you could also use the term, board, I mean, borderlands is, is one, but I thought frontier was provocative because normally when we talk about frontiers, it's like the edges of political spaces. It's places that could become borderlands. The space I'm writing about is actually smack dab in the middle of the map of the Ottoman Empire. But it's not a place where the type of state structures and the type of economic systems that would come were really present. It was really a central area of concern and, and development uh, of on those fronts. So for all those reasons, I used the term. I thought it sounded good. It does sound good. <laughs> I use it for similar words, reasons. And yeah, yeah, it really does emphasize the idea of dynamic change. And that was something that drew me to it too. I just want to push you on one thing about, about the, the, you mentioned borderlands. Mm -hmm. In the, during the Ottoman period, it was obviously kind of right smack dab in the middle geographically or spatially speaking in terms of, of the Ottoman Empire. But then, of course, under the Republic of Turkey, it does become like right on the on a borderland. Yeah. Is there kind of a change in times of historical theme? Would you rather change the terminology between the, those two periods or do you rather kind of continue it? And do, do they speak to each other particularly or are they or, or is it not worth making a distinction too much there? In this case, interestingly, I would say there's a continuity mm. from the late Ottoman period through to the World War II period in terms of how state officials are viewing this region as a source of anxiety over their sovereignty. But the groups they fixate on are not the same over those decades. So there is actually a very interesting and powerful continuity in the experience of being sort of a contested but central province to being a pretty firmly, pretty firmly um, loyal province, let's say, in the Republic of Turkey, but nonetheless being on the edge of some things that are happening. And by the way, there's migration going across the border at that time. Um, in addition, this region of Turkey 
um, in a way that isn't as palpable in the late Ottoman period, becomes marked with a sort of vague racial difference. I don't want people to think that I'm imposing like very American categories on this context, but you did have people who are, their Turkishness is uh, a source of concern because they don't speak Turkish. They're from regions where state hegemony is more contested or their 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 ancestors came from the other side of what is now the border in Syria. So that 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 uh, frontier dynamic does kind of shift into something that's more le legible for something like the U.S. Mexico border. Differences aside, um, so you're right. There is a very interesting um, development with the creation of a political border there. But what I would also point out is there's an excellent book uh, by a colleague, Samuel Dolby, about the Jazeera region, which is this uh, region which now straddles Turkey. Syria and Iraq, sort of desert edges region, um, and environmental history as well. And what he shows is like this place was very much a borderland became before it became a borderland. And in many ways, the construction of the border, without getting too much into the details of the argument, is just like another another iteration of something that we can see going on quite differently in the Ottoman period. And that in a way, the the geographical terms of this region, at least during the Ottoman period, were shaped by the way that people in that region lived. So yeah, for historians of the Middle East, I mean, I think there's a lot of like cool stuff that can be done with playing with, uh, you know, the idea of borderlands, but also like breaking down the artificial boundary in the historiography between a Ottoman empire that is one political unit, and then a number of colonial mandates or nation states that all have hard borders between them. We need to work across that temporal boundary uh, to see a lot of interesting things. And of course, I think that's one of the major contributions of your book as well as the fact you do transfer, do transcend these spatial, these temporal markers. In that case, I want to ask you one final question about your book before, before we wrap up. Uh, and that is about the century that you refer to. It is, it is a lot about a century of change in Chukarova. And as you've kind of alluded to, you want to break down these spatial, these temporal boundaries. Um, and also in your final chapter, you refer to um, a lot of continuity kind of between like across this century and between the Ottoman period and the Republican period. Um, I suppose then, um, how did environmental history as a discipline and they were to identify and examine this kind of tension between massive change on the one hand, but also kind of trying to ex examine continuities across this period too. Thanks. That's a very excellent question, I have to say, uh, because really that tension between change and continuity is at the heart of the book, but also how it transformed and how it went from being a very excited grad student's idea about the modern world and a proper book. Um, one of my advisors at Georgetown University, talk about destiny. One of my advisors at Georgetown University, who I didn't really know about before I started my coursework, was uh, John McNeil, who had just written a book called Mosquito Empires. So like, you know, you see how you, people fit together in nice ways. Um, he told me in maybe an early iteration of my argument that's part of this book, he just left a well, a little snarky comment on my paper, which was poorly written. 
that I really like the word transformation. And I seem to lapse into just describing everything as a transformation if I don't actually know what the process is that I'm describing, I guess is what he was getting at. And this was very valuable feedback for me very early in the project that I have to be clear about what I'm actually talking about. And the more I delved into this history and the more I studied across this very long time period, as I said, not just reading a hundred years of primary sources selectively, um, but reading historiography going back hundreds of years, I became just enthralled with the continuities as well. Uh, and I came to appreciate that what we as historians call change is actually expressed through really small differences in larger continuities that, you know, life is just a little bit different one year than it was before. And in the long term, that results in major change. And we narrate it as major change. But it's a change expressed through understanding the continuities and the underlying similarity of human life as it takes different form and different forms in different times and places. So yeah, like continuity is kind of the closest thing to I, ha I have to a theoretical framework that's explicitly stated in the introduction of the book that we really need to think about what we study as change uh, as sort of um, percussive or being expressed through how things repeat just a little bit different each time. This is something, I guess, this comes out of the argument of rhythm analysis, not, not a super famous book, uh, but one that really spoke to me. Wonderful. I love this idea of things that are, uh, I'm not familiar with that work, but uh, I like this idea of just repeating slightly differently each time as a way of thinking about small transformations. Um, within it's Lefebvre. It, sorry, it's rhythm, rhythm Analysis by Lefebvre. Um, yeah. I, it's not his most famous book. That's why I, I didn't want to not say say the author's name. Nice one. Yeah, yeah. familiar with Lefebvre, but yeah, I'll, yeah. Uh, I'll check that out. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, but obviously, um, your book has been uh, a great success. Thank you so much for discussing it. I hope you've had a um, chance to enjoy the success of the book as well. Um, but with despite all that, obviously, there must be other things now on the horizon. What are you working on now? Uh, what might we see from you in, I suppose, the relatively near future? Thank you for that. And finishing the book made me confused about what to do next, especially... You mentioned the success, especially when I saw what uh, royalty royalty checks look like for an academic book and what the incentives to publish are. I started to think about what do I really, really, really want to spend 10 years doing? Um, I got a couple irons in the fire. The one I'll mention for this podcast, because it's relevant, um, I'm trying to write a environmental history of the late Ottoman Empire and modern Middle East that uses my method methodological approach but each chapter highlighting a different understudied geography. I recently presented the kernel of that of one of the chapters uh, at an environmental history conference about modern Greece. This is me branching out a little bit, trying to read some Greek sources and do some new things. It was a rough, rough first, rough first draft. Uh, but I, what I realized actually in doing that. I chose um, sponge diving in the Dodecanese Islands for those who are interested. And there's not a lot of really prominent scholarship on this topic, but there's a ton of little stuff, especially by local people or especially by scholars in Greece. There's some stuff written by people in Turkey. And so this book is kind of expand on that methodology, but also make more explicit that like there's this whole world of people writing about small places 
and they do it because they're from those places or because there's interest they're interested in those places and they're never reaching they're not the you know the big new york times best-selling book empire of cotton whatever books like this very 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 humble work right very humble work and very personal but we should have narratives of these parts of the world especially if we're writing in english and you know, it's another context, like people who live in a different part of the world, speak a different language, have a different culture, you know, like a foreigner writing about their history should really be rooted in these local histories. And, you know, they, they deserve to shine a little. So what are things, one of the things I'm going to try to do in that book is, is, is make that more explicit. This is something that people who work on the Ottoman Empire already know, but, you know, make it something explicit for the reader who might be an undergraduate taking a class on the environmental history of the Middle East to say, like, look, these big narratives are actually made up of, you know, people piecing together smaller stories um, that will always be traced back to to someone who has a very intimate connection to the topic. That's wonderful. It sounds like, uh, yes, considering the yes, the royalty checks, it has to be a labor of love. And this seems like a very worthy <laughs> yeah. one. Um, thank you very much, Professor Grayson. Um, thank you. For discussing all this with me um, and for your wonderful book. Um, I also want to thank uh, Sam Glee Riemann, who organized and produced this podcast, and the listener, of course, for downloading or streaming wherever you are. Um, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership of Praising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 